Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. The pirates lounged happily on the beach after their latest raid, capturing a fat trading ship sitting low in the water, shouting out for all to hear that it was full of wealth. They couldn't have been more pleased. They were about to be rich from everything they could sell and everyone they could ransom. But while most of the captives crouched huddled together on the sand, casting quick, fearful glances at the hard men who had taken them, one seemed to strut around the beach like he owned it. Usually just the sight of the pirates was enough to intimidate people into silent terror. Their scarred, sun-dark skin stretched taut across hard, ocean-wrought muscles. Heavy, salted beards and long, straggled hair, framing piercing eyes and gap-toothed grins. But this lone captive was a strange one. He exuded, like many others before him, all the arrogance of a Roman elite, but obstinately refusing to be cowed by a shout or a flash of steel like the rest of them. Instead, this Roman mingled with them, cracked jokes, even bossed them around. The pirates actually found themselves liking him. They'd even be sorry to see him go when someone eventually paid the 50 talents they had demanded for his ransom. You should have seen him, they laughed amongst themselves, when he'd found out they had originally asked for just 20 talents. He was insulted, infuriated. He marched to the pirate leaders with fire in his eyes, shaking his head in disbelief. Did they not know who they had captured? Actually, no, they didn't know, but who cares? And they raised his ransom to the 50 talents he had demanded. Yes, they liked him a lot. They liked him so much that while around a campfire one night, they found it amusing that he said he'd come back one day and kill them all. I'll crucify the whole lot of you, he said. They laughed. He laughed. They all laughed. Laughed and laughed and laughed. That was funny, they all thought, as the laughter finally, naturally died away. Except for the man himself. He was still laughing, wheezing with laughter, tears in his eyes. What a strange, strange man, the pirates thought. What is your name again? they asked him. He suddenly stopped laughing and sat up straight. His expression became intense, his eyes fierce, his voice powerful. Caesar, he said. Gaius, Julius, Caesar. Welcome to the first episode of the brand new podcast series from Bite Size Battles. The Rise of Julius Caesar Background Context The Early Years Those pirates could not have known how the name Caesar would become etched into history. They had captured one of Rome's most famous names, perhaps its most famous, except it just wasn't famous yet. But the name Caesar was known in Roman circles at the time. The name Caesar is actually a cognomen, a nickname. It was common for related Roman families to form a clan and for clans to have a nickname. 
Julius Caesar was a member of the ancient Julian clan, and the Julian's nickname was, of course, Caesar. Its most likely origin is that one of Caesar's ancestors had been born by Caesarian, from the Latin Caesus or cut, as in cut from the womb. Following Roman custom, the nickname Caesar was then passed from father to son, all the way to our man himself. Gaius was his first name, Julius his surname, and Caesar his family nickname. Many of the other famous Roman names we know of are actually their family nicknames, and some of them are surprising. Brutus, for example, meant stupid, while Cicero meant chickpea. So their actual names were Marcus Junius Stupid and Marcus Tullius Chickpea. But I digress. The point was, the Caesar family name was already known in Rome long before he made it a historical phenomenon, synonymous with European royalty for centuries to come. The Caesars were members of the Roman patrician elite, claiming descent from Julius, the son of the Trojan hero Aeneas, and grandson of the goddess Venus. So, they were Roman nobles, and always would be. But their impeccable name could not make up for their lack of fortune, both financial and political. Caesar's family was so poor, they made their home in the Sabura, Rome's vast, overpopulated neighbourhood notorious for its crime and licentious behaviour. It was full of swindlers and thieves and prostitutes, and an assortment of the roughest kinds of people there can be. But it was also spilling over with the everyday people who made up the majority of the Roman population, the plebeians or plebs. Merchants and shopkeepers, women grocery shopping, slaves running errands, people drinking in taverns, carpenters and smiths and bakers, potters and jewellers and entertainers and butchers. It was a heaving throng of every kind of sound imaginable, every kind of smell, and every culture, language, race and creed of the Mediterranean. This was the place, these were the surroundings in which Julius Caesar grew up, and they shaped his political future. He was in no doubt about his own elite status as a patrician, but his heart was with the people of the Sabura, and it was this combination of patrician head and plebeian heart which in part drove his early rise. But if Caesar's very early life was the heady mix of all the excitements of the Sabura, it was nothing compared to the turmoil that was about to hit Rome from roughly 91 BC when Caesar was just nine years old. The first to kick off was the Italian War, in which Rome's Italian allies demanded Roman citizenship. They'd had a champion in the Roman tribune, Marcus Livius Drusus, but he was promptly murdered for supporting them. So they rebelled and a nasty bitter civil war erupted, which took four years to put down and the man who eventually did put it down was the ruthless general, Sulla. But now a new threat emerged in the east. 
Mithridates of Pontus had used the chaos of the Italian war to sweep into the Roman province of Asia in modern-day Turkey, massacring 80,000 Roman and Italian people. So who better to confront this bloodthirsty barbarian than the victor of the Italian war, Sulla? The Senate appointed Sulla to lead a campaign against Mithridates, but a troublesome tribune used a few bully boys in the forum to force the Senate to change their mind and appoint another man instead. Marius. Marius and Sulla already didn't like each other, and their rivalry was about to tear the Roman world apart. But what does this all have to do with Caesar? Well, Marius was Caesar's uncle, and Marius's principal ally, the consul Cinna, was Caesar's father-in-law. Caesar had just married Cinna's beautiful daughter, Cornelia, and to top it all off, Caesar's father had just died, suddenly thrusting the young Gaius Julius to the head of the family. I'm conflating a period of three years or so here, but the point is, here was Caesar, still a teenager, sharply propelled from childhood to manhood and immediately finding himself caught right in the middle of a bitter feud between his uncle and father-in-law on one side, who he was blood-bound to support, and the ruthless General Sulla on the other. That feud very nearly caused Julius Caesar to lose his own young life. What happened was unprecedented in Roman history. Sulla wasn't happy at being replaced by Marius as the general who would take on Mithridates, so he roused his troops and marched on Rome, seizing it by force. Seems an entirely reasonable response. Actually, of course, not since the founding of Rome had the city seen anything like it. Marius did the only thing he could and fled to Africa. Sulla condemned him as an outlaw and then left to take on Mithridates. But Sulla had set a dangerous precedent that would bite him and many others in the future squarely in the butt. As soon as Sulla's shadow disappeared over the horizon, the consul Cinna led another army into Rome, joined by a returned and vengeful Marius. Marius began a purge of his political opponents, their heads displayed on pikes in the forum. His gangs of thugs prowled Rome, looking for anyone Marius didn't like. Eventually, even Cinna was so disgusted that he had his own troops cut down Marius's gangs. And then, Marius himself suddenly died in his bed soon afterwards, of natural causes. But the nightmare for Rome had only just begun because once Sulla had dealt with Mithridates, he returned, sweeping into Rome once more and shrugging off all the pretty meek attempts to stop him. Once there, Sulla began his own massacre of his opponents, a bloodbath that made Marius look like Mother Teresa by comparison. Sulla began posting lists of people he wanted dead and would pay a nice little sum to anyone who did the killing. These proscriptions, as they were known, meant Rome was a hellish place to be under Sulla. Soon, it wasn't just Sulla's enemies that were being killed. 
it was quite easy for anyone to add any name they wanted to the death lists. If you fancied someone's wife, denounce him, add his name to the list, kill him, get paid for killing him, and then go comfort his grieving widow. Which brings us back to our man Gaius Julius Caesar. As a nephew of Marius and son-in-law of Cinna, Caesar was an immense danger. So far his name had been left off the death lists, but he feared that was about to change when he was summoned before Sulla himself. Caesar was a fresh-faced 18-year-old and must have been anxious, but he was also brave and strode to meet Sulla with back straight and head high. To everyone's surprise, Sulla was feeling magnanimous and did not demand Caesar's death, but just the simple command that he divorce his wife, Cornelia, the daughter of Cinna, who himself was now dead anyway, at the hands of his own mutinous soldiers. Sulla had had all of his followers put aside wives who had awkward family connections with the Marius Cinna block, and all had done so. Surely Caesar, an enemy, would take the mercy offered him and divorce Cornelia as Sulla demanded. But he didn't. To everyone's stunned disbelief, this young Caesar looked the dictator Sulla in the eye and refused. Was it youthful ego or a deep love he could not let go of? Maybe both. But either way, Caesar was flouting the direct order of a man who was, there and then, killing thousands. Caesar marched off as Sulla cocked an eyebrow, and sure enough, the next day, Caesar was marked for death. There is no better illustration of the daring and audacity already flowing through Caesar's veins. He simply would not submit. But he wasn't stupid either, and fled Rome just as the wolves began to hunt him. Everyone, from private citizens, gangs of thugs, and Sulla's professional agents went after him, and for months he travelled from place to place, never staying in one location for more than a night or so. The constant running took its toll on Caesar. Exhausted, he got malaria, and with sickness and fevers racking his body, one of his pursuers caught up with him. One of Sulla's agents by the name of Cornelius intercepted Caesar at his lowest ebb. Even if Caesar had wanted to resist, there was no way he could. Sweating, coughing and retching in bed, the sword of Damocles, or rather Cornelius, hung literally over his head. All Caesar could do was reach into his pockets and hand over the equivalent of every cent he had. If you think one person can't change history, imagine how one swing of Cornelius's sword would have. But Cornelius took the bribe and left Caesar alone, a disease-ridden, penniless fugitive. It was at this moment, though, that the rise of Julius Caesar truly began. He did not stop rising until the Ides of March, 
38 years later. He still had powerful friends in Rome who were advocating for him, urging Sulla to forgive him and allow him to return, including several of the Vestal Virgins. Eventually, Sulla relented, reuniting him with his wife Cornelia. The joy of their reunion was immense, but Rome was still dangerous and Caesar still more or less destitute, so he set off to make his fortune and a name for himself pretty much immediately. He joined an attack on Mytilene on the Greek island of Lesbos, where there was a stubborn outpost of Mithridatic resistance holding out against their Roman besiegers. The Roman commander Marcus Thermus sent Caesar to bring back ships from an ally named Nicomedes, the king of Bithynia. Caesar did just that, and very well. So well, in fact, that rumours began to swirl that Caesar had paid Nicomedes with a few bedroom favours. Caesar was enraged, and for the rest of his life he was forced to deny the accusations when his opponents dragged the rumours up. There was no shame in the Roman world as to homosexuality. The problem for Caesar was that as a king, Nicomedes was his social superior, and so the rumours suggested that Caesar was essentially the inferior target of another man's sexual appetite. In fact, his enemies began calling Caesar the Queen of Bithynia, and Nicomedes his pedicator an easy way of saying that Caesar was his sexual subordinate. No self-respecting Roman patrician would have been pleased with rumours such as those, and will never know the truth for sure. But whatever the case, Caesar with his pride and ego was incensed by the attack on his reputation and used his fury in the assault on Mytilene. The citadel walls rose straight out of the Aegean Sea, on a small island just off the coast of Lesbos itself, and could only be assaulted from the water. It was now that the ships Caesar had brought back from Bithynia were so crucial, as they were used as siege towers and platforms from which ropes and ladders were used to scale the walls. Roman soldiers scurried up them while defenders rained down arrows, javelins and stones. Many fell to the sea with a shriek, or the hard wooden decks of the ships with a sickening crack. But Caesar led the way, bounding up the rungs of his ladder, scaling the parapet, and then cleaving his sword this way and that with the speed of a cat. He carved an opening which allowed other Romans to join him on the wall, before leading the storming of the city. Even at this early stage, it's clear that Caesar was an outstanding leader of men, someone who could infect others with his energy and fearlessness in the face of brutal combat. So impressive was he that he was awarded the Civic Crown, the second highest military decoration of the Roman world. It signalled to all that Caesar was an extraordinary soldier who had saved the lives of his men. So esteemed was it that if the wearer of the civic crown entered a Roman festival, everyone, even senators, would rise to their feet in respect. This was Caesar's first big moment, 
and when Sulla died in 78 BC, he returned to Rome a military hero. Back in a more peaceful Rome, Caesar continued his rise in the law courts. It might sound surprising, but one of the best ways for an ambitious would-be Roman politician to make a name for himself was in law. Because win or lose each case, you had the opportunity to showcase your rhetoric, wit and sharp mind, all of which were essential in impressing the large crowds who would gather to watch them. Caesar, remember, was always a man of the people, and he knew from an early age that he must be a favourite of theirs. In a series of cases, Caesar used all the tricks of the oratorical trade. Elocution, humour, rhythm, imagery, alliteration, analogy. He was so successful that even perhaps ancient history's most famous orator, Cicero, said that Caesar's style was perfect. The crowds loved him for taking on corrupt governors and officials, and patricians and senators alike began to take real note of this master of oratory, wearer of the civic crown, and defier of Sulla. But Caesar, ever the perfectionist, wanted to be even more perfect, and so decided to travel to the island of Rhodes to be trained further in oratory by Apollonius, the Greek rhetorician of the day and the teacher of Cicero himself. So, in 75 BC, Caesar boarded one of the many merchant vessels plying their trade across the Mediterranean, bound for Rhodes. But he never made it. Because, of course, he was captured by pirates just off the coast of Asia Minor in the Aegean Sea. The pirates infesting the Aegean of 75 BC were all hard, rough men. They knew their trade like a baker knows bread. Wait in a concealed inlet for an unsuspecting Roman trading vessel to pass, and then pounce with full sail and churning oars before there's anything they can do about it. The traders' gold and silver would be theirs, all the trade goods they were carrying could be sold, even the ship itself would fetch a good price at another port, somewhere miles away. But best of all, were the passengers that traders frequently carried, often wealthy or prominent Romans, travelling to Asia Minor or the many Greek islands. These men and women could be ransomed back to their grateful families for huge sums. And if that didn't work, they would still get something for them from the many slave markets of the Mediterranean Sea. The crew and passengers of the merchant ship would have seen the masts appearing suddenly around a headland, oars pounding the sea, churning it so it looked as if the pirate ships foamed at the mouth with rabid violence. As they closed on the fat trading ship fast, Caesar drew his sword, but, like all good leaders, he knew when to fight and when not to. He sheathed it again. I can almost feel the roll of Caesar's eyes, the huff of breath as he realises he's now going to be held for ransom. As the bandits stormed the trading vessel and took it back with them, the captives treated the pirates with very real fear. 
but Caesar gave them a constant dose of good-natured contempt. He bossed them around, shushed them when they kept him awake at night, shared their meals and wrote them poetry. He even called them vulgar barbarians when they failed to appreciate his poems. And of course, he made them raise his own ransom price from 20 to 50 talents, or about 300,000 silver coins. It was pure lion energy. All in all, the pirates loved Caesar. They liked him so much they were probably sorry to see him go when all the money came in 40 days later. But they didn't really give a second thought to Caesar's promises that he would come back and crucify them. He wouldn't find them. He wouldn't bother. He was joking. They couldn't have been more wrong because now Caesar showed another of his major character traits. He was persistent, ruthless, action-orientated. He was as good as his word. As soon as he reached the nearby town of Miletus, he rustled up some local militia and headed straight back to the pirates' base, where he surprised them sleeping. Imagine their faces when they opened their eyes to see their former captive back, and with a small army come to take them prisoner. There was no escape for the pirates, and wide-eyed they must have realised their mistake. This man was a phenomenon. They should have taken him more seriously and relocated as soon as he had left. But they didn't have long to regret their error, because pretty soon they were all dead. Crucified, just as Caesar had promised. But it seems Caesar might have liked them as much as they liked him, because before he had them all nailed to crosses, he'd had their throats cut. A small mercy, but Caesar would display mercy many times over the years. As if he wasn't busy enough making a name for himself, Caesar then rushes back into military action against a renewed threat from Mithridates. He served under Marcus Antonius, the father of Caesar's future right-hand man, Mark Antony. And not only does he serve with distinction yet again, but careful political manoeuvring by his mother while he was away saw him elected as Pontifex, one of the senior priests of Rome. As Pontifex, Caesar could be elected to high political office and lead armies in the field. He was now a celebrated military hero, survivor and executor of pirates, defier of dictators, masterful oratorical lawyer, and a pontifex of Rome. He was still just 27 years old. Join us next time as Caesar's rise sees him declared imperator, governor, consul, and pontifex maximus. But for the first time, he also starts working outside the typical structures of the Roman Republic, forming the first triumvirate, or rule of three men. Get ready to meet Crassus and Pompey. To finish, firstly a huge thank you to Erica Stevenson for her tireless research on our man Gaius. The fascinating story of Julius Caesar is enormous, and Erica's ability with primary sources and distilling information 
has made this series so much more possible. You can follow Erica on Instagram at Moaninc, that's M-O-A-N-I-N-C, and us at Bite Size Battles. Finally, this series is dedicated to the memory of Ree O'Gerrity, someone who liked Bite Size Battles' very first Instagram post, listened to every episode, and offered me constant support and encouragement during the first 10 months of its life. She was also the first person who believed in me enough to support me on Patreon, giving me a little each month to make this podcast a long-term project. Ree was a complete stranger from Australia, but from day one was there every step of the way with me, and I will be grateful to her forever. She passed on recently, but I know she's still listening. Thank you, Ree, for everything. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you next time.